Okay. We'll, <clears throat> we'll open with prayer, and then we'll kind of see where we're going tonight. Um, make sure we pick up exactly where we left off last week. So, Father in heaven, thank you for the day, for your presence with us. You are good, faithful, true. We're grateful that we have you as our God, and there is no other God. So we're grateful <clears throat> to worship you, to know you, and I pray that you would be present with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> if I remember right, last week we got to, um, or through pretty much the Protestant Reformation, and just mentioned the, the different um, streams of Theology really is how things divided up among Protestantism. Catholicism stayed essentially the same after the Reformation other than what's called the Council of Trent, which was shortly after the Reformation. Um, and they cleaned a few things up, but for the most part, like indulgences, for instance, they kind of cleaned up some of that. But they doubled down on an awful lot of the rest of things. So um, it was, they call it the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Um, that they doubled down on, I don't know a percentage, but let's just say they doubled down on probably 75% of what they believe, 80 and then you know, modified some, some of the things that had been sources of complaint and corruption. Okay? But it wasn't, it wasn't an overhaul at all um, of basic what Roman Catholicism, Catholicism had come to by that point. So I mentioned that there were, it's kind of hard to say, three, four, I think you could even say five different kind of streams that came out of um, the Protestant Reformation, and then if you continue to follow it out, it's virtually uncountable. Um, the the substreams that broke off of the four or five major streams. Okay, um, and I can't remember the. I, I don't have my notes here of what I did last week, but um, let's say we go with five, and um, there's no particular order we need to follow, but one um, <clears throat> would be Anglican, and then there are going to be substreams that come off of that, but that's the Church of England, the English Reformation. Then a whole group of churches called Reformed, um, primarily uh, most influenced by John Calvin. Third would be a stream called Anabaptist, and I think I mentioned these last week, but Anabaptists, the rebaptizers, um, they were quite, um, they would have been the most extreme of Protestant reformers. They felt that no one else went as far as needed, and so they were pretty um, radical for that day. Then Lutheran, um, would be a fourth. And then I think kind of a catch-all, which sort of is re uh, related to Reformed, but not too closely anymore. And let's just call it Baptist. Okay? Um, <clears throat> now, primarily the reason for these different streams in Protestantism were doctrinal differences. Some doctrinal differences that were substantial, significant. Others that at least to us, we might think they weren't as significant as they seemed back then. Okay? They were sacraments, things of that sort that they, they uh, disagreed over then, that we, and I don't know necessarily if it's good or bad. Um, in our day, we look at a lot of the things they fought over and we think, oh, what, what, what were they messing with that for? Well, there were some 
fundamental reasons uh, in many cases, and a lot of cases they were correcting abuses. Um, those abuses have been so long, in some cases, changed that we don't think about them much anymore. Again, we're not in 2023 burning people's stake because they do or don't believe in transubstantiation, okay? Um, we don't, that fight's gone, okay? Um, <clears throat> so I think what we'll do, it, again, it really doesn't um, matter which order we take it in, but before we start kind of tracing these groups out, there are several fundamental questions that they all had to answer and over which many of the um, divergent streams um, differed, okay? One question is um, source of authority. Or we could say in parentheses, um, your view of Scripture. That was very, very critical. Still is. <clears throat> Second, the, the nature of God. Now that takes in the doctrine of the Trinity. It takes in... Um, the incarnation of Christ, the all Christology, as well as doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, so the nature of God, that was obviously a critical uh, doctrine. And there's some, there were some issues there. You know what I was thinking about the other day? I don't even, well, let me think. How long ago was it? Two weeks ago we did Orthodox. I think, did I remember to tell you one of the, a major quirky deal that um, separated Christian Orthodox, or, or Eastern Orthodox from Catholic um, and Protestants is the doctrine of the Trinity. Did I mention to you what's called procession? Okay. I don't know how I missed that because it's a fairly big one. The Catholics all Orthodox Protestants, we all agree um, in what's called the procession uh, or the doctrine of procession, which is in the Trinity, that um, Jesus is begotten of the Father. Okay, That word begotten is used only of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit um, proceeds from the Father and the Son, okay? I can't really dig up or remember and sort of don't care why the Orthodox went weird and said, oh, Jesus or the Holy Spirit only proceeds from the Father, not the Son. But that was, and that's a serious one because what it does is it, it kind of um, demeans Christ a notch um, because the scriptures is clear I don't know why they they got off on this that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father says that in the scripture but Jesus and, and then Jesus said repeatedly I will send him into the world so I don't know the background of that but that was another major doctrinal thing that um, Orthodox um, cut them off really from Western Christianity, which at the time was Roman Catholicism, then became Catholicism and Protestantism. Anyway, I don't know if you could have gone through the night without hearing that, but now you know it. <clears throat> um, so questions, source of authority, nature of God, doctrine of sin, Specifically, are you born with or without a sinful nature? And that goes back to ancient um, 5th century, 400s. Um, Pelagius um, and Augustine. Um, you know, I kind of wish I had time, but I, but, well, I'll take a little bit here. Augustine... St. Augustine, who died in 430, um, and he lived in North Africa, uh, came from Rome, but lived in North Africa. 
was considered today in the Roman Catholic Church a, a doctor of theology. I mean, the doctor of the church. Um, great reasoner, great writer, and so forth. He was a pretty down-the-middle-of-the-road down guy and, and a, quite an authority until a British monk by the name of Pelagius showed up in Rome. And he, he taught that man is not born with a sinful nature. We're born tabula rosa, which is blank, blank table, blank page. So that, and that we retain, since we're not depraved, we retain the power to choose not to sin. So theoretically, you could go through your whole life and not commit a sin by your own determination. So the, all, uh, the obvious outgrowth of that is, I don't need a savior. I mean, it was nuts. Um, he made quite a stir. And um, Augustine rose up to be the defender of the faith. And Augustine, and I'm, I'm a pipsqueak <laughs> standing here um, critiquing Augustine, okay? But everybody seems to recognize that in Augustine's effort to refute Pelagius' notion that we're not born with a sinful nature, he so painted as, I mean, black as he could paint, the human, fallen human heart, that he, he backed himself, in a sense, he backed himself into a corner. He taught such a total depravity that it forced him into another position, was, which was, we have no power whatsoever to either initiate or even respond to God. We, we, we can't even reach our hand up to the God who's reaching his hand down to us. Therefore, salvation has to be entirely of God. God chooses who gets saved. Saves them with or without their will doesn't matter. They don't really have a free will. Okay? He didn't believe that initially. But the fight against Pelagius, kind of, he backed into another ditch of predestination and such total depravity that he denied free will at all. Well... The Catholic Church, within, um, well, there was a council a year after he died. And the, the Catholic Church never bought predestination. Um, they refuted that. They did go with his doctrine of grace and so forth. But at any rate, um, you end up then <clears throat> with... That's the start, you could say, of what ultimately became the next stream, which was reformed. Okay, now we'll just stay off that for a second. But um, anyway, the doctrine of sin then was a major question that Protestants had to hammer out. Um, how bad is it? Do we have, do we retain a free will? Or have we lost our free will and God has to save us solely on his own? Or a third position is, did God enable by his grace through the atonement, did he at least enable enough um, loosening of the bondage of the will by sin so that I can't initiate seeking after God. I can't fix myself, obviously, but I can respond to God's overtures to me. When he calls, I can answer. I can recognize his voice, and I can answer. And I can respond to him. Um, still keeping salvation by grace, not by human works or ability. Okay? So those were things that the doctrine of sin had to involve. Then finally, the doctrine of salvation. That's a, obviously a major doctrine that the Protestants um, had to, it wasn't, they didn't have to read or discover it, it was in Scripture, but um, 
it had gradually over the centuries become salvation by works. Uh, salvation by, you know, all kinds of stuff, pilgrimages, um, you know, everything you had to do earned your way. And so they had to dust off and um, rediscover justification by faith. Yeah. Well, there, oh yeah, there's tons of writings. Um, and the scriptures. Well, <clears throat> um, of course you have all the, you had the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures at the time of Christ. That was settled. Then it took at least, actually, um, it took 150 years to settle on which books and I'll change that date in a second, but I'm not contradicting myself. It took 150 years to get a pretty well-established um, list of New Testament books. Okay? It didn't really get finished for almost another 100 years or more. But you had the, then you had all the writings of the New Testament. Then you have <clears throat> a huge body of what are called uh, the writings of the early church fathers. And so you have people that wrote that were alive when Paul was there, alive when uh, John was still living. Um, that multiplied, of course, there were more and more commentaries on Scripture and all kinds of stuff. So um, there's a massive amount of um, Christian literature that they would use and most of their um, doctrinal, big doctrinal fights would be precipitated by somebody writing something that somebody else or maybe a number of other people said, hey, th th this is off. And so then there would be writings that they would attack, you know, and go back and forth. And it got, if it got bad enough, um, as it often did, then you'd get the emperor or later the pope call a council. And the councils were, um, the, prob the very first council that you could say occurred in the Christian church to settle a doctrinal issue was in Acts 15. That's the first council where they, they settled the question of, or gathered because of the furor, what do we do with the new Gentile believers crowding into the church and the Jews who are still in a sense dominating the church demand that they keep all the dietary laws, ceremonial laws, sacrificial laws, and this isn't going to work. And so you have that council in Acts 15. Well, then you have a number of those after. Can't remember the number. Um, that was another thing. <clears throat> the Catholic Church believe, um, listens to, adopts, believes, I can't remember how many councils, the Eastern Orthodox only takes the first seven, and they don't listen to any more. But anyway, there were tons of, of, of writings. My, um, not to get off subject, but my Jonathan, my son, his doctorate from Marquette was in what's called patristics, the fathers. And then you got Greek fathers and you got Latin fathers. And out of all that, his whole dissertation was on one guy named John Chrysostom, kind of an Eastern guy. But anyway, so they had a wealth of not only scripture in lots of different languages, plus commentaries, interpretations of scripture that, that um, you know, was, they had a wealth of it. And that then they would also, then came in, I got a shot up here and keep moving. Um, then came in, who are you arguing from? Are you arguing from the New Testament against what, say, Pelagius said? Or are you also arguing from Irenaeus and um, Clement and whoever? And so then 
you got some of the church fathers who were so venerated and looked up to that that got to be almost treated as scripture. And then you kept growing towards praying to saints and all that stuff. Okay. Um, anyway. <clears throat> um, where in the world was I? Um, you know, I don't know where I was and I don't know where I was going. <laughs> um, well, anyway. Um, yeah, those four questions, that's, I'm done with that. Those were the, the main issues that they either split over or joined together over. Now, um, <clears throat> Anglican was Church of England. You know how that came about. Um, it came about influence, pretty heavy influence from Germany and Luther in the Reformation. Um, the King of England was, England was kind of rough for the Pope's because they were far away and they were pretty independent and when the pope began to start taxing them and threatening to take catholic owned property to put them in the king's ownership and therefore collect taxes on them um, the the english didn't like that very well and so um, it came to a head Pure politics had nothing to do with God, in a sense. Because Henry VIII, who, I don't, can't even remember who it was, was Catherine. It was Catherine. Okay, he wanted to divorce Catherine. Um, how many ever wives he had, it was because, you know, none of them could produce a male heir. Okay, which he assumed, of course, was their fault. We don't know that. But um, Catherine... Let's see, Catherine was the sister of so-and-so of Spain, who I think Catherine's brother was Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, so the Pope, I mean, he's, he's caught. He makes, he, he lets the King of England, who he's already in a fight with and threatening to stop t sending taxes to Rome, he, if he doesn't please him, he's in trouble. If he pleases him, then he gets the Holy Roman Emperor mad at him because it's his sister that Henry VIII is trying to get rid of. Okay? So there was much prayer. No, there wasn't prayer. It didn't have anything to do with it. It was pure politics and money. So finally, he wouldn't give Henry VIII a divorce. So then Henry VIII, saintly person that he was, um, was moved to become a Protestant. And so um, he just edict, you know, that they weren't Catholics anymore. And <clears throat> for a while, the Church of England was still pretty Catholic. But then uh, over that century, the 1500s, they became more fully Protestant, if you call it that. Okay. Now, <clears throat> um, so that's one of the streams. The second one is would be recall, be called reformed. Okay, now reformed really doesn't have anything to do with the Reformation. I mean, the, the two words, reformed. Um, I don't know the history of it, but they're still called reformed today. But reformed was primarily a guy named Zwingli and then Calvin in what's called the Swiss Reformation. Zwingli was in Zurich and Calvin was in Geneva. Okay. Um, now they were, they were a little bit younger than Luther, but of course they crossed paths and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli <clears throat> differed over stuff. Um, they didn't get along very well. So they weren't absorbed into the German Reformation. They ended up with what was a Swiss Reformation. Now, <clears throat> the Reformed, to give you a little idea of who they were, the later streams, 16s, 17s, 1800s, the Presbyterians, Congregationalists, um, Let's see. Well, the Christian Reformed, Dutch Reform, um, 
if you go to uh, one of the real early in early 1700s or late 1600s um, in America was Holland, Michigan uh, of Dutch and Christian Reformed. Okay, um, I've been to Holland, uh, <clears throat> Michigan. Um, my son, my other son um, taught uh, at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids. Um, the place is just absolutely packed with Reformed churches. Now, what is Reformed? Um, both Luther and Calvin, two different people, bit different age, but were both heavily influenced by Augustine. Okay, and Augustine's writings were a thousand years, maybe more, 1100 years, before Luther, Calvin, those guys, okay? Um, Augustine's, so Augustine taught predestination in the 400s. It was rejected by the church in general, but revived by Luther to some degree, and to a greater degree, Calvin, okay? So they reached back to the writings of um, Augustine and revived and adopted the doctrine of predestination, total depravity, um, no free will, all of that, okay? <clears throat> Which is still around today and in fact is pretty healthy. I might... And I'm sorry about that, but it is. Um, but I won't belabor this. I'm sure some of you have heard this eight to nine thousand times from me, so you're sick of hearing it. Um, for those of you that are ha sitting on the edge of your seat and have never heard it, um, I do have to give you this, okay? Tulip. Tulip is the doctrine. It's still used today. So, I mean, it's not, they'll, they use it. Tulip is total depravity, and the depravity is of such a degree that there is no freedom, no, ability, no freedom of the will for a human, no ability to respond to God. Even if God calls me, I can't even answer him. I mean, I, I am totally, I am so depraved that I'm helpless, okay? I am completely um, powerless. Second, due to that fact is you of TULIP, unconditional election or predestination. You can't do a thing to save yourself. If you're going to be saved, God, you don't have a free will, you have nothing. So if God's going to, if, if he's ever going to save you, he's got to determine it. He's got to do it on a highly selective basis and choose some to be saved. Um, and he is responsible for every movement of their heart. They may think they're thinking about sin and themselves and worried about heaven, about hell and the favor of God. They just think they're thinking that on their own. But they can't think it on their own. God has to do it. They may think that they are hungering after God. Maybe they go to start going to church or they ask somebody about the things of God. They may think that they're doing that, but God's doing it all. They're just, they're, they're robots. Okay, now, the L, which is a real stumbling block for um, lots of people, and it is, frankly, I think it ought to be, it is and ought to be, an embarrassment for Reformed theologians. The L stands for limited atonement. Now, limited atonement to me is just a flat blasphemous doctrine, okay? Um, you know, whoever wants to raise, you know, their hands in here, uh, let's, well, Dan asked a question. He seems to have some kind of interest in God. That's a little hint. It's no proof. It's a hint that maybe he's one of the elect, but we don't know it. 
The rest of you, bunch of hellions, are going straight to the hot place and don't complain about it. You ought to go there. He should. God, just to show his goodness, is going to save Dan. So, this is the doctrine that I just grind my teeth over. Dan Hansen, Jesus didn't die for you. Jeff, Jesus didn't die for you. Because he predetermined for the foundation of the world that you're going to hell. There's no reason for Jesus to die for you. You're going to hell. He only died for Dan. Limited atonement. It's a godless doctrine. Now, I, in Tulip, is irresistible grace. Meaning, Dan Barks is going to get saved. Kicking, screaming, unconscious, coma, I don't care. He is going to get saved. Okay? If you've been predestined since the foundation of the world, how are you not going to get saved? You will get saved. The P, perseverance of the saints. If Dan was predetermined from the foundation of the world that he would be saved, Jesus died specifically for him because he's one of the elect. Perseverance means how in the world is he ever going to backslide and miss heaven? It's impossible. It's just impossible. So, he can live like, he can live like the devil and he's going to heaven. Okay? Now, that's official reformed theology. And that took a pretty good chunk. It wouldn't be, you know, 50% of all Protestantism, but um, it took a big group um, of people that bought into that. Okay? Um, one of the things about it, that doctrine, that system, it's very, very logically consistent. It's easy to remember. Um, and it's logical. You're so bad, you can't do anything. God has to choose you. Uh, he's got to do the choosing, you can't. And then he died especially for those. And they're going to irresistibly get saved. And there's no way in the world they're going to ever lose out. It's, a, it's an easy little system. Um, <clears throat> I absolutely, well, what's it been? Three, four months ago, I was sitting at lunch with um, another couple. And, you know, the, um, it really starts, <laughs> it starts the lunch off good. When you, you, you've only ordered whether you want water or Coke, and they leave. And the guy starts in, um, you know, are you, uh, wh what do you believe? Gave a, a question, you know, are you an Arminian? What, you Wesleyan? You're a Calvinist? What are you? Um, <clears throat> I said, well, I'm an Arminian. I'm Wesleyan. Well, how in the world can you be a Wesleyan? Started in sovereignty of God, you know, and, and it was about that bad. Um, God's sovereign. We can't do anything. And I sat there, and I, the only thing I said, I said, look, um, you don't realize I died in the wool. I am. There isn't a snowball's chance in the hot place that I'm going to become a reformed. But I said, let me just say this. So I'm not going to argue with it, except for this. I just said, it kind of came to my mind, and I know God gave it to me because God's not reformed. I said, Jesus is a fraud. If you're right, he's a miserable fraud. He, according to the original language, bellowed is a word, sobbed out loud over Jerusalem. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you stone the prophets that we send to you, kill, you know, whoever. How often... I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would 
not. And I said, he should get an Oscar because he's bawling out loud in front of everybody over the fact that these people would not let him gather them. But he determined it before eternity. He's the one that determined that they wouldn't listen to him if everything's of God. God does everything. And I just said, that's why I'm not reformed. Um, another thing that is a much smaller issue, but if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Nobody ever heard of, nobody ever heard of that doctrine until Augustine wrote about it. The church rejected it. It never got picked up again for another thousand years. Um, church history, you know what the greatest argument was? Real close, even in the early second century, meaning in the 100s, okay? You know what the biggest argument was? They were under persecution. They were really ferocious arguments over, well, kind of two things that dovetailed together. Could you be forgiven of post-baptismal sin? If you sinned once after being baptized, was that forgivable? And one group very early in the early church said no. And they were in persecution, so primarily a sin would be recanting Christ or turning in your Bibles or turning in your neighbor who had a Bible. If you did that, was there forgiveness? There were three groups, basically two. No. Yes, but only once. Yes, but unlimited. Okay? No one stepped forward and said, friends and neighbors, remember, we're saved eternally. We're determined to be saved. I don't care what you do. You're fine. Nobody did that anywhere clear up until Constantine now he was in the 300s and when he became a Christian which there's some debate over that but anyway he believing in this post baptismal sins were not forgiven did what many did and postponed their baptism if they could time it just right <laughs> before they fell, fell over sideways dead. So you, you didn't get baptized, you know, in, tw in your 20s or whatever. You tried, and now that's an error. But it still proves the fact that nobody believed that once you're saved, you're always saved. Nobody believed that. So, that's another reason I think Reformed theology is, is oddly attractive. Um, there's a brand of Reformed that is even more attractive, which I don't, we'll probably not get to tonight. Maybe we will. Um, but the idea that I, it, it's one and done, and I'm the elect and I can't fall, I can't, I'm fine, is pretty, it's pretty attractive. Now, um, reform then produced all the reforms, uh, reformed churches. Um, they had some impact on the Anglican church, not a lot. Um, I was going to bring in here what was called the Augsburg, Augsburg Confession, which is the, a guy named Philip Melanchthon, who was the understudy and the heir of Luther. When Luther died, Melanchthon took over the Lutheran Reformation movement. He wrote the Augsburg Confession. Um, it's 20 pages, so um, I didn't do it. <clears throat> but just to make sure where they were at, uh, uh, Luther was a little bit looser on the idea of freedom of the will. Um, he wasn't as rigid that you could do any nothing. Of course, he said, you've got to have the aid of the Holy Spirit to hear God's call, sense his conviction, his drawing, and respond. Well, that's biblical. Um, 
Jesus said, nobody can come unto me unless they be drawn. And he, that's the business he's in. Um, so um, there were, that was one of the reasons. There, that was at least one of the things that Luther and Calvin didn't agree on. They didn't agree on communion either. But anyway, um, so that's reformed. We'll, you know, we'll see this a little bit later. But then the next dream, um, I think I mentioned this last week, Anabaptists. The Anabaptist, A-N-A, Baptist. Okay, it just means rebaptizers, um, and they were um, anathema. <laughs> they they hated the idea of infant baptism. Um, yet, um, take take John Calvin. He was reformed, and in the, and some of the Anabaptists were in the same city. Um, no, yeah, Geneva's were. Calvin was. Calvin basically took over Geneva. He ran the civil government and the the church. And if you didn't, if you're, if you had a child, there were some exemptions of a little bit for winter in Switzerland. Okay, which it gets cold there. You, I think it was two weeks. You had. Um, Assuming the child was healthy and the mother was healthy and so forth. You had two weeks to have your baby baptized or you were exiled from the city. Okay, you had to move out, leave. Um, so that's how far Calvin was and Luther too on infant baptism. Well, the Anabaptists, went, they went only, their whole thing was nothing but adult baptism and no such thing as infant baptism, okay? Now, um, so they believed, so then, there, I don't think there'd be a person alive, at least in Europe, um, who wasn't infant baptized as either Catholic or Lutheran or somebody. So the, the, the teaching was then that all these people must be re-baptized um, as adults, with consciousness of having faith, okay? Um, so they, and they also believed it was essential salvation. You could not be saved if you weren't baptized. And baptism had to be by immersion, okay? Um, now, Anabaptists produced the Amish, Mennonites, so forth. Then we move, move to Lutherans. Um, the Lutheran stream, of course, was the original um, Reformation stream of thinking. Luther's main doctrine, um, his story is so fascinating. Um, his life and his conversion, um, he, they would find him. He was a, in a what I can't remember was a Franciscan anyway mo a monastery um, he was he was going he was walking on a road outside of Erfurt which is in Germany um, and his dad was his dad was a coal miner and they hoped their son would become a lawyer and he was planning on doing that well he was, he's, I can't remember where, he was going someplace um, to see about going to school. And a lightning struck a tree that he was walking by, split it completely in half, made, you know, he was unconscious. He comes to, it's pouring down rain. And so he cries out to St. Anne. I guess St. Anne was the patron saint of the coal miners. I don't know, I don't know if you guys, whoever works at the mines know that. So anyway, you got something else you can put up on the dashboard of the, you know, the haul truck. Um, but anyway, he promised um, St. Anne that he would, for saving his life, he would join the monastery, become a monk, which he did within two weeks. Really wrecked his parents. I mean, they were just disappointed. But at any rate, um, he was the most zealous monk ever. Um, he just threw himself into uh, study and, you know, whatever. Bible study and theology, philosophy. Uh, he ended up earning a doctorate. He became a, a doctor of both um, philosophy and, and theology. 
um, it was why, while he was teaching the book of Romans, um, just to backtrack, the abbey of the monastery where he went to and spent years, they would find him unconscious in his cell from starving himself, drinking no water, and he had made himself a couple of, of either you know rough reeds or in some cases small chains, um, whips, and he would beat himself until he would pass out um, from blood loss, dehydration, no food, no water, and he would just, my sin, my sin, my sin. He was just eaten with sense of, you know, just shame before God. And then teaching Romans, he gets to chapter 1, 17. Uh, the just shall live by faith. And he said it was as if a light shone on that verse in the parchment he was reading. <clears throat> and he realized, because he had done all the pilgrimages to Rome, the, and, he, and Luther was pretty sarcastic. He, was, he had a biting tongue. Um, but, you know, he said, I forget how many barn loads or, you know, like hay mouths full um, piles of nails from the original cross. Um, he said, here in Germany alone, we have the graves of 18 of the original 12 apostles. <laughs> okay. Um, he was, uh, you know, he, he saw through because he woke up and saw, I'm saved by faith, not by pilgrimages, not by uh, worshiping relics. Oh, this is a, this is, and he brought up, the, this is, this is a finger joint from John the Baptist. Um, he saw this is nonsense. And the light came into his heart. And the fervor then with which he pursued um, elevation within Catholicism, he used to begin writing and teaching. And of course, his teachings began to spread. And it wasn't too long, and he got the Pope's eye. Um, and they started seeing in some of his sermons and his books, and they didn't like it. Um, and so then, of course, he ended up, he never wanted to leave the Catholic Church. He just wanted to purge it of what he saw were errors they had drifted into over the centuries in human power. And he just said, let's just get back to the Scripture. That's all. Let's just be Bible people. Um, but, of course, that was a threat to the whole power structure. And so he ended up having a price put on his head and... Uh, I, told, I think I told you some of that last week where he, they, they fake kidnapped him and put him in a, in a real isolated castle. Um, but anyway, Luther um, ended up not quite where Calvin was as far as the loss of the freedom of will, but you didn't have very much will. Okay? Um, in fact, one of his books is entitled The Bondage of the Will. He believes, and at least his heirs today are pretty close to baptismal regeneration. You're brought into the kingdom of God by baptism. Baptism is essential. Um, infant baptism. Um, I remember baptizing a little, um, it's been 20 years ago here in town, or here, you know, but, but um, baptizing an infant of a family that were Lutherans, raised Lutheran um, background. Anyway, they said, we're bringing, you know, we're bringing this little boy um, today, we're bringing this little boy to me, they said this, bringing him into the kingdom of God. Well, I didn't say anything to him, was, you know. He's already in the kingdom of God. He's innocent. The atonement covers children. It's not until you reach the age of accountability that you get yourself in trouble. Paul said that. I was alive once, even though I didn't have the law. But when the law came, consciousness of it, sin sprang to life and I died. Then he was at and beyond the age of accountability. Um, but Luther is not quite as predestinarian as Calvin, um, and that got watered down some over the centuries. 
Um, but I'd have to say this. Well, let me ask you this. Um, any, how many of you, anybody here with a Lutheran background? Let me see your, let me see your hands. We're going to see who's going to make it or not. And you had Canadian Lutheran, which is, you know, I don't know if that's worse or whatever. Um, who else over here? Okay. Um, the sad thing is, uh, you've got, you've got a, a spectrum in the Lutheran church that is all the way from, well, the even, of all things, the name, the evangelical Lutheran church. They are the most liberal. Uh, they're the rainbow flag ordained homosexuals, you know, pastors, same-sex weddings, the whole business. Um, they are so far out there. Martin Luther, well, re I've read enough of his biographies, several. He was something else. Um, I don't know. He'd probably, he'd probably burn the place down on him. Um, he was that, uh, he wasn't crazy, but man, he was a character. Um, now, if he went to Missouri Synod, he'd find pretty close to probably what he, he raised up. Um, what, what synod? Do you know, Ann, what, what, were you Wisconsin, Missouri, ELCA? Do you know? It was, it was Grandma's Luther. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anybody? Missouri, yeah. Um, it's just amazing and sad, um, the, the wide difference. Um, there are, well, and a lot of the Lutherans, of course, have nothing to do with each other because of that. They're just totally different. Um, so let's, I think we can do the last one. Uh, Lutheran will look down the road a little, little um, closer, but um, the last stream that's a stream in a sense of its own would be Baptist. Now, Baptist is a, I probably don't, I probably shouldn't make them a stream because they are so mingled. There's so many different backgrounds in that. Um, they uh, the Baptists are, um, what would we call them? Watered down, I mean heavy watered down, um, reformed. They're Calvinists, but they're not reformed Calvinist. Now, meaning they're not TULIP, okay? Um, there are about, well, there's 330 million people or 40 million people in the United States. There's about 300 million Baptist denominations, okay? Um, they're, and, and none of them talk to each other, okay? Um, there's independent Baptists. There's, uh, there are about 40, at least 40, Baptist denominations. There's General Baptist, Regular Baptist, um, American Baptist, uh, North American Baptist, you know, it, it, there's conservative Baptists, there's independent, don't you tell us what to do, Baptists. And there, there's a missionary Baptist, there's Mount Zion Baptist, there's all kinds, okay? Some of them, you have free will Baptists um, um, that are basically Arminian in doctrine, meaning they believe in a free will. Um, but the vast majority of Baptists, just try to remember this. This is a simple way maybe to look at it. Instead of being TULIP, they reject T-U-L-I and they cling to P for all they're worth. Okay? They, and I'm glad they don't believe in that we're such scum we can't even respond to God. I'm glad they for sure don't believe in limited atonement. Jesus only died for the elect. Um, they don't leave, uh, believe at all in predestination. They preach and missionize and so forth as if everybody has a choice. And remember Billy Graham's um, um, 
it was the magazine, and I can't remember, we call it the hour of decision. That's not predestination. That's free will. You've got to make a decision, and you have the power to, and you're accountable for it. Um, yet, um, retaining the Calvinistic notion of um, unconditional security. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Okay? Um, the truth of the matter is, Reformed are more logical. They got a good, strong foundation. It's wrong, but they, it's a good, logical sequence. But knocking out the floor of total depravity and predestination and the walls of irresistible grace and limited uh, atonement and then hanging on to the roof of perseverance of the saints with the, f with the floor and the walls gone, it doesn't make any theological sense. But that's what you have generally with what you would call mild or, yeah, mild, wouldn't be moderate, mild Calvinism, okay? Um, those four streams then um, populated differently parts of the world. Um, Scandinavia were um, rock-solid German Luther, and most of the Lutheran, uh, early Lutheran population in America came from Germany and Scandinavia. Um, and that's an and settled a lot through the northern tier. Um, so that's why, you know, in uh, North Dakota, and, you know, I had a bunch of, I had a whole bunch of people in my first church when I was in seminary that were for, from, um, and they, this is how they sounded, at least to me, Minnesota, you know, they're always talking about Minnesota, and they were all Lutheran background. Um, that, you know, that's fine. Um, but they were, because they were maybe second, even third generation uh, immigrants from Scandinavian um, countries. So, um, anyway, America became, because it was free, you had the Puritans, uh, which were mostly Reformed. Um, I was reading today, I was reading the list of the, of the colleges founded by Congregationalists or Presbyterians or whoever. Um, every Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, every last one of them. Every one of the Ivy League and the Rutgers, all these, William and Mary, um, they're all settled by um, people fleeing England, Europe for, for religious freedom that were some stripe of Protestant. Um, we in America then ended up having the, the broadest um, spread of different kinds of, of um, religions coming out of the Reformation. Okay, um, we can get out here a little early. Any questions before we go? There's no way in the world that what the stuff I said was that clear. That, and, or it could be so garbled that you don't even know what to ask. <laughs> yeah. I, no, no, listen, I was thinking today, I was thinking today that the whole, the whole charismatic slash Pentecostal, however you want to say it, would, they would be a substream. And they would be a substream out of the Methodist um, slash um, holiness movement in America. It was started, it was started in 1908, Azusa Street Revival in L.A. Um, but they came out of well, what would have been Anglican, Methodist, and then you have, you know, Nazarene, 60 or 70 um, denominations that are Methodistic in their, their doctrine. So they, I'm going to cover that. They wouldn't be a stream of their own. 
<laughs> if you, you can do that in the parking lot, but <laughs> um, that in the 70s, that was a major, major, major movement and heavily influenced to this day. I think it simmered down some in Catholicism, but Notre Dame in 73 or 4, the Notre Dame football stadium was packed with Catholic charismatics and a huge rally that they had there. Um, so that's, having started in 1908, I mean, that's a really recent movement. Um, but anyway, yeah, there's, there's a lot there too. So, yeah. As we keep getting, it seems like, further from the mark of truth, you know, towards the, some of these denominations, I'm more interested in the apologetics side of it. You know, maybe a couple uh, one-liners of their biggest argument or how you witness to somebody who's, you know, five-point Calvinist. You know, I, I have a lot of arguments with Calvinists, but uh, usually they're standing, fist throwing, and, you know, peeing on the wall, you know. Well, my dad was, I've mentioned to him, kind of wish everybody knew him. He was a character. But he would always tell me, <clears throat> don't talk to Calvinists. He said they're like putting a kink in a coat, a coat hanger wire. You'll never get it out. <laughs> uh, don't care how much you try to bend it out, you'll never get it out. They're hopeless. Um, but anyway... I think, I think in some cases, um, I don't know what good it does. I, I don't mean that you, you never should. But um, another, another thing I'll throw in, here is a good scripture, here's an apologetic. Um, I had a guy come into my office here some time ago, and he attended here for a while, and my heart just went out to him. He was a Baptist pastor, but he didn't have a church, and he just, and I believe he was, I think he was misled, but he had a tender heart. He thought God, he moved from somewhere, quit his job, resigned to a church, but he was in a little church where he was bivocational. So he quit his job, quit his church, moved all the way here to Gillette from states over, I can't remember where he's from, and he said, God just told him to come to Gillette, start a Baptist church. And I, I thought, well, we got enough of them. But, um, you know, I mean, there's no room, in a sense. Uh, what would he... But he wanted to come in and talk to me. And I had some... And I tried to help him just money-wise. You know what I mean? Get a job here or whatever. Um, but anyway, he one day he came in and he, he wanted to talk to me about finished salvation. That's another term that's used. Your sins when you get saved are your sins pa uh, past, present, future. That is another doctrine that they're covered forever. And so I referred him to, we talked, you know, and I referred him to M Matthew 18, the parable of the guy that owed 50,000 talents and God forgave him, the master forgave him. And then he went out and choked his, you know, sir, his fellow buddy, the servant that owed him a hundred cents. And if you read that carefully, that debt was reinstated. He said, I forgave you that debt. And you wouldn't forgive your brother. Then he said, deliver him to the tormentors until he pays everything he owes me. He reinstated the debt. That's not finished salvation. That's not past, present, all future sins are forgiven. It's not. And then he said, so will, Jesus summed it up, so will your Father in heaven do to you if you don't from your heart forgive your brother. Man, that's a solemn warning. Um, and at that, this guy, you know, wasn't, he wasn't what, unkind, rude, mad, wanting to fight. But he just got up and said, well, you know, there's no talking to you. Um, and so that was the last I've seen him. Um, it's pretty ingrained in people, and I think a lot of times um, they will, they hang on to that doctrine because it's safe, they think, for family. 
my son died of a drug overdose, raised in Sunday school, and he knew, but he was way far away, you know, what, but, but he, he asked Jesus in his heart at VBS. He, he, I know he's okay. Well, huh? Yeah, and it's a, it's a comfort. It's a false comfort, but that's sometimes a lot of the reason people hang on to that, not because it's biblical doctrine. Well, I better get at it. Yes. It would be part of what uh, generally is called um, Catholic, the Catholic Charismatic Movement. Okay. It'd be a part of that, you know, that whole emphasis, which, of course, you know, Catholicism is all, they've had, you know, they believe in healing, they believe in exorcism and all, you know, but they've never had the charismatic influence, which has, um, there's a pretty big group in Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. Okay, eventually we are going to get to the Mormons. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for letting us be here. Thank you for everyone here. And Lord, we're, we're grateful for the Bible. Grateful that you have given us light. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us know clearly uh, the truth and as Paul said to Timothy, don't preach any other doctrine but what you've heard me preach. So what is in your word, we've got to know and stick to it. Keep us now, I pray, as we go. In Christ's name, amen.